my, I had something to read you here. Um, how, agri, how agri-corporations around the world would treat their cows. North American Corporation. You have two cows. You sell one and force the other to produce the milk of four cows. You're surprised when the cow drops dead. French. You have two cows. You go on strike because you want three cows. Japanese. You have two cows. Excuse me. You redesign them to a tenth the size of ordinary cows, producing 20 times the milk. You then create clever cow cartoons called Kaukimon and market them worldwide. German. You have two cows, re-engineered so they'll live for 100 years, eat once a month, and milk themselves. British. You have two cows. Both are mad. Russian. I I have a Russian family background, so this was my favorite. You have two cows. You count them and learn you have five cows. You count them again and learn you have 42. You count them again and learn you have 12. You stop counting cows and open another bottle of vodka. (laughs) Swiss. You have 5,000 cows. None belongs to you. You charge others for storing them. Hindu. You have two cows. You worship them both. Chinese. You have two cows and 300 people milking them. You claim full employment, high bovine productivity, and arrest the newsman who questions the numbers. And I had one more to add from this parasha. Um, Ancient Israeli. This is from the last story in chapter 21. You have two cows. You give them both to the Palestinian leader, I mean the the Philistine leader. In Hebrew, they're the same word, sorry. So as I was saying, you give both of the cows to the Philistine leader in uh, your peace talks over land, I mean over uh, water rights. So let's look at let's look at First Peter together first. In First uh, Peter, chapter three, Genevieve pointed this out to me. It says that uh, women shouldn't wear dresses. The Bible says that women shouldn't wear dresses. Well, we'll see that in First uh, Peter chapter three, verse uh, verse three. It says. Uh, in the New American Standard Version, it says your adornment must not be merely external, but the merely there is in italics. So what it says is your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. See? So it says that women shouldn't wear dresses. Right there in 1 Peter 3, verse 3. <laughs> or they also shouldn't wear gold jewelry or braid their hair. So you could say that pearls and diamonds, they're okay, but not gold jewelry. All right? Um, perms and French twists are acceptable, but not braids. Is that what the apostle is saying there? No. <laughs> but is that what the letter of the law could be read as saying? Yeah, you could actually, if you wanted to take a really like letter of the law approach, that's what it could be saying. Um, this is just a humorous reading, right? It's, but it's an example of what can happen when we, uh, when we like when we over-literally read certain passages out of context. They, uh, we can actually end up being vastly out of touch with what the author was saying. Um, that's a warning. <laughs> the second warning is, uh, like, it's not enough to understand the letter of the law, is it? Like, the spirit of the law, that is to say, the, the intent, the, the underlying principle, the, the heart behind it, must also be grasped. You, you could say that the, intern, the internal, without the external, always wildly misses the mark. And vice versa. If you just have the external without the internal, you're also going to wildly miss the mark, even though it might look close. <laughs> that's, that's what I gained from Genevieve's humorous observation this week about why, how the Bible says that women shouldn't wear dresses. <laughs> so actually, that kind of reminded me, though, of our discussion last Shabbat. You know, we were, we were talking about that mitzvah where it says that you shall not mention the names of other gods, nor shall they be heard from your mouth. And I can see how Yeshua is going to come and fulfill the Torah quite literally in that regard. Like, in the Messianic era, and in the, the Olam Haba, the world to come, there will be no remembrance. And I believe there will be no remembrance of false gods. You know, He will restore us to the pure language. Um, every, every misconception about the Creator will be permanently obliterated from the minds of humanity. 
However, until then, we're in an interim state, so what do we do? You know, how does this apply in, in everyday life? And uh, we, we, had talked, uh, we had talked about, you know, if you take this, like, extremely literally, then you cannot read the whole Torah out loud. You can't read the whole of the apostolic scriptures out loud because there are names of pagan gods mentioned there, hey? So it's just an example of how, you know, when we come to the Word, it always takes that listening to the Spirit and having the, the Ruach HaKodesh apply the Torah to our lives, you know, receiving our halacha from the Master. So maybe that would be a little example from, from last week. And, you know, for the record, I do, I do have a preference for... Um, I'll give you an example, actually. Um, when Arafat was still around, and uh, Israel had ceased all negotiations and all dealings with him because he was a terrorist, and he had no legitimacy, um, and they interviewed Ariel Sharon's son, Omri. And one of the things Omri said was, we're working to uh, make Arafat entirely irrelevant. And you could say when it comes to the names of false gods that the more we avoid those terms, the more we are making them what Israel was seeking to make Arafat irrelevant and, um, and just bring to light the, the illegitimacy of their claims, right? So maybe you could say that from that. Here, here, here's, here's the question though. What, you know, Shimon Kifa, he has some advice for women here. He has some advice for men. Let's look at both of those for a moment here because from what I can see, all of us in this room fit under one of those two categories. Um, he, what was the heart of what he was saying? He, here's what I get out of it. Like, to focus primarily on your inner beauty. To spend more time bejeweling your soul with attractive feminine qualities such as quietness and gentleness. I have to admit that I, I find, like, Genevieve's quietness and her gentleness, like, a very attractive feature about her. You know, I, I have to admit that. So I can see how Simon Peter had a point here. Um... This, I really love this Hebrew term for gentleness. It's anava. Can we all say anava? A-N-A-V-A-H. Anava. In Hebrew, it's ein, nun, uh, vav, hey. Uh, anava. And uh, actually, uh, one, of my, one of my Orthodox Jewish settler friends in Israel has a daughter named anava. It's a very beautiful name. It means gentleness, but it also means humility and modesty. All wrapped up in one. So when it says that Moshe was the humblest man in his generation, it was saying that he was that word. It was, it's the same root concept there, right? He was a man who was humble. He was a man uh, that also can mean afflicted in certain situations. But it also means that he was a modest man, and he was a gentle man. Moses was a gentleman. That's the idea there. Uh, these qualities, Shimon Kifa points out, are especially precious to God who sees the inner person more clearly than anyone else. Uh, these classic feminine qualities are also increasingly falling out of vogue in Western society to jer- today, both in the church and in the, in, and in the uh, secular world. Shimon Kifa, he, he goes on to give a note to these new believers, uh, the, the ladies who had uh, forsaken paganism. You know, maybe they used to worship Aphrodite. Maybe they had little uh, images of whoever. And, uh, you know, they, they came to faith in Mashiach. And as a result, they, they forsook the paganism. And he has a note for them. I love this note. Um, he, uh, he, he's playing on the whole idea of when someone would come into the family of Israel, when they would choose to worship the one true God and Him alone, then they would, uh, they would, do, they would do certain things. They would immerse themselves in water. They would, um, they would go, to, go to the temple if possible and, and make an offering in the temple. If it was a male, he'd get circumcised. And they would also take a Hebrew name. That was one of the things that someone would do when they, quote, converted to Judaism. And if you were a woman from the nations, then you automatically became so-and-so the daughter of Sarah. That was your last name. Daughter of Sarah. Bat Sarah. Right? So, so this gives us the context for Shimon Kifa talking about, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he talks about how, and, and, and verse 6, he talks about how you have become her daughters if you do what's right without being intimidated by any fear. So he's talking about like this process of becoming daughters of Sarah, but not Sarah. And I, I, I really appreciate that. He says specifically, you become a, a bat Sarah, like a daughter of Sarah, by, by cultivating the inner qualities she displayed in general and the attitude she displayed towards her husband in particular. And uh, along, along those lines, I want to I share one thing with you from last Shabbat. I love the opening. There's an opening line here in First Peter 1 verse 1, where he says, and like, just, this is like the personal note coming through. Like, this is Shimon Kifa as a person. Like, just hear the wonder in his voice when he says that. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. 
And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Like, hear that. Here's a man who walked with the master for years. Here's a man who, like, lived closely with the master. Maybe they even, like, wrestled a couple times. You know what I'm saying? Like, they really knew each other. And here's someone, Kepha, looking at believers, like, hundreds of miles away from Israel. And saying, wow, you've never even seen my rabbi before. And you believe in him. And look how happy you are as a result. Like, I, know, I, just, I hear the wonder in his voice. And I, I, I hear that in, in several places throughout the scripture. Maybe it's the same concept here where he talks about you know, women from the nations becoming benot Sarah. Like, wow. That is the work of Mashiach. Um, Genevieve and I were talking about a business principle in the business world, if you want to get a job done, the more people that you get involved, the longer it's going to take and the more effort is going to have to go into it. It's like every layer of people involved uh, increases your work input exponentially. It's like a principle, right? And you know what? That also applies when it comes to Bible translations. Like, okay, let's say we have Shimon Kifa, who was a traditional Jew. He thought in Hebrew. That was his heart language, right? And he tries to express something, and he has this Hebrew concept in his mind that has, like, Hebrew theological um, underpinnings. And uh, eventually it gets, it, you know, it gets put out there to the Greco-Roman world in Greek, in Greek. And then we get it in English. You're talking about an idea that is twice removed from its original source, right? The result is, like, a lot of problems, some misunderstandings. Um, same ideas in the business world, eh? He, here's, a little, here's a little example. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says that women are weaker vessels. <laughs> like, what's a vessel? What's a weaker vessel? What does that mean? Like, like Genevieve and I were talking about that all, as we drove up here this morning. All the different ways you could misunderstand this, this one term. Well, uh, what does that mean? Women are weaker vessels. And, like, are they mentally feeb- like, feeble? Um, are they like prone to freaking out? Are they? Is it just mean they're physically like not as energetic? Like, like really, you could you could misunderstand this in one of so many ways, hey? And also, what's a vessel in this concept? Like, we don't really use the term is it Tupperware. Something about Tupperware, maybe? Like, that, like you know what I mean? What? That's why women sell Tupperware. It's yeah, right. So you know, I I want to I want to share with you a couple. You know, there have been Messianic Jewish scholars over the centuries who have endeavored to take the Greek, the Greek uh, like texts of the New Testament and re- retro-translate them back into Hebrew to try and get the original thought there, hey? Uh, we also have the, the Aramaic New Testament, the Peshitta text, which some scholars, there's an increasing number of scholars in the last century, believe is the original. I wanted to, I wanted to share with you the concept behind the, quote, weak vessel. Maybe it'll make more sense. This is like... This scholar side to me coming out. So, you know, um, just, just bear with me for a second. I, I love this kind of thing. Uh, I have here a couple of my Hebrew translations. I've studied through all of these, a couple, some of them a couple times, and I, I really appreciated them. Um, here we have uh, Zalkinson, Yitzchak Zalkinson, a Messianic Jew from the 1800s. Uh, he, he translated this term uh, as Kli-Rach. Everybody say Kli-Rach. Like a keli or a kli in the construct form is a vessel, okay? Keli is vessel. And rach is the word in Hebrew for sensitive or tender. Let me ask you, does that make more sense? That a woman is the sensitive or tender one in the, in the marital unit? Uh, yeah, such is often the case, okay. Um, Delich, we have, I have a copy of Delich's here, a translation here. He renders this term as kli rofe. Rofe... You could translate it as relaxed. is probably the best rendering. Um, the root there, rafa, is a verb to like let go, to relax, to be slack. Sometimes it even means like lazy or sloppy. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not commenting on the feminine character qualities, right? I'm just saying there are certain places in the Tanakh where this term is. It has the nuance of being these these things, right? Like uh, Pharaoh when he told Moses, "You guys are a bunch of." Um, you're near peem, you're lazy, you're slackers, whatever, right? Good, get back to work. You're, that, that's the idea there. So, of course, that isn't exactly what Shimon's saying here. I'm trying to give you the full meaning of the word uh, in terms of how its root was used. But, but, but just, just think about this word for a min- minute. Why did Delitz choose that word? 
Here are a couple understandings that maybe I'd get out of it. Um, maybe the broader concept is that women have a different approach to life sometimes. Um, maybe women have a different modus operandi than men sometimes. Uh, what's the classic example? You go on a vacation and the woman says, Oh, an antique store. Let's stop and look at some antiques, right? And what does the man say? We have 132 kilometers to go and we only have <clears throat> 70 minutes to go there. And at a rate of 112 kilometers an hour, we're going to be late by five minutes. We can't stop. Right? I mean, okay, that, those are stereotypes, right? Stereotypes are not always true. I admit that. But you know what? When it comes to Genevieve and me, it's pretty true. Um, like, and it may be, I, I, some things in my background contribute to this, but like maybe my construction work background, for instance, but it makes me very action-oriented sometimes. And when I move, I can move really fast. Even when we used to go hunting, we used to go duck hunting in the country, and we'd have our shotguns in, in, in the back there, and uh, we'd see some ducks, so we'd pull over, we, went, we used to go hunting with our old veterinarian, Ed, and, uh, who was like a Vietnam War vet, and anyway, before Ed was even out of the vehicle, we'd be out of the vehicle, we'd have our shotguns up, they were loaded, and we were going down the ditch for the ducks, right? And he was like, you guys are crazy, you're so fast, I don't know. But anyway, I, I, I can still be like that. So let's say we have somewhere to be. We'll pull up in the vehicle, right? And I'll be like, boom, boom, boom. I'll grab my stuff and I'll be out of the truck. And I'll be waiting at Genevieve's side and jumping up and down before she's even unbuckled. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's happened at times. And Genevieve is still like starting to gather her things at the opposite of light speed and putting everything exactly where it goes. And, and I mean, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating, but sometimes that kind of happens, hey? And you know what? I, I, I've come to really appreciate that. I've come to appreciate that we have different, like, um, I don't know what the plural is of modus, but we have different modus operandi, right? We sometimes have different approaches to life, and if it wasn't for Genevieve, I'd probably kill myself. And if it wasn't for me, Genevieve would probably never get anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, when you put us together, we become a great duo. And uh, so, you know, maybe that's... There are two action words in terms of Simon Peter's advice to husbands. First, like, try and understand your wife, because she's different than you, is kind of the inference, right? And... and uh, and uh, maybe, maybe, his, maybe Delich's term here kind of gives us a, an understanding of that. Kind of maybe sometimes a more relaxed approach to life. Not always, right? But sometimes. Um, the, yeah, Genevieve. And there are times for me to do it your way too. So it works both ways, eh? So, so I mean, talk about... Pr- Man, Simon Peter was a good Jew, wasn't he? Like, talk about pragmatic. Talk about practical advice, eh? Um, the, the other term here, his advice for husbands, is to uh, honor your wife. And the, 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 uh, the Aramaic term here in the, uh, in the, the Peshitta translation, or the, perhaps the original, depending on your opinion, is uh, ikara. Everybody say ikara. It's related to the Hebrew term yakar, same word, which means to like, treat something as precious or valuable. So his, his advice is like to treat your wife as precious and valuable. In practical ways. Um, and then he says, why? Because if you don't, your prayers are going to be stopped up. I, I don't totally understand that one, but I'll give, you, I'll give you my understanding of it. In my understanding, the way a man treats his wife is the way he treats the, the Shekhinah, like the, the Divine Presence. So like, if, you don't, if, if a man doesn't treat his wife with, with an open heart and with kindness and with gentleness and uh, with humility, there's a good chance that that's how he treats the Almighty too. Specifically the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? The Holy Spirit has some very distinct feminine qualities when you read about the Holy Spirit. So that, that's my understanding maybe. Like, uh, you know, if you don't listen to your wife, maybe the Almighty won't listen to you. Maybe that's what it's saying. I can't say for sure, but that's the idea that I would get out of it. <clears throat> In three nine, we also get some more practical advice. Um, when someone, how, many, how many of you have ever been insulted or even cursed by someone before? Okay, so the, this is how to respond. If someone insults you, like, incite, insult them on even a deeper level. If someone curses you, like, curse them out even better, right? That, that's what Simon Peter says to do here. Respond in kind. And if you can, like, one-up them, that's even better, right? If they take a chunk out of you, like, take their heads off, right? That, that's what Simon... Oh, oh, shoot, sorry. I was uh, reading a... I don't, know, I don't know what I was reading. But anyway, isn't that crazy? Like, he says to do the exact opposite of what human nature would do. Like, when someone insults you to say, like, God bless you, when someone curses you to be like, Father, I pray that you would give that person your, your very best. Like, and you, like that, just, that is not our first 
response, is it? But that's, that's Yeshua's first response, and I admire that about him, and we're becoming that too. So here's a really practical thing. Next someone insults you or curses you or whatever, here, here, are, two, here are two little liturgical phrases that you can incorporate. God bless so-and-so. Say it, say, it, say it after me. God bless so-and-so. God bless so-and-so. Yeah. And the other one is, like, I wish that person all the best. Just say you wish that person all the best. I, I found that's, that's been a very powerful phrase in my life. And just because I say that doesn't mean I, you know, that I'm having issues with someone. So if you ever hear me say, I wish whoever all the best, it doesn't mean I'm having issues with them. Just so you know. But anyway, yeah. You know what? Sometimes we think that that person doesn't deserve his best. That person doesn't deserve a blessing. But you know what? We don't either. None of us do. He, he's given it undeservedly. And it's his blessing that leads us to repentance too. So we want to bless everybody in our lives. In 3.10, he gives us some practical advice along those lines also. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with regards to Lashon Hara, speaking, speaking badly of others. He says, like, keep your tongue from evil. So keep your tongue from speaking about bad things. Avoid speaking badly of others at all costs, even if what you're saying is true. I'm not sure. Have you ever noticed that? Like, sometimes uh, we can just have a bias towards focusing on the negative and talking about the negative. And you know what? If we're looking for the negative in people or in whatever, man, you, we will not be disappointed. It's everywhere. You know, but the the flip side of the equation is if we look for the good, there will always be the good too. And if we want to talk about the good, that's always available. Um, you know, I, in my opinion, that can even include some forms of church bashing, or uh, you know, messianic bashing messianic ministries that we disagree with. There's a time to sit down and objectively analyze doctrine, you know, but not to make it personal. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example that I was thinking about last year. Um, I, for a while, it almost looked like FFOZ bashing was becoming more popular than church bashing in some sectors of the Messianic movement. Like, for instance, on Facebook, some of the stuff that was said about those, those individuals and their motives, it was ugly. I was like, I can't believe that person said that. They're not talking about doctrine here. They're, they're making personal attacks on someone. They're judging that person's motives as if they think they're God or something. And I, I had a couple conversations where I, 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 I messaged people and I just said, are you sure this is, like, this is right? You know. So anyway, maybe those are examples that come close to the heart in the Messianic Jewish community instead of just saying, oh, you know, out there, whatever. Um, I, I love what my mama taught me. If you don't have anything good to say, just don't say anything at all. <laughs> Here, here's a question. Like, we only have so much airtime in our lives. We only have so many words to say. Why not use them up talking about the glories of our Rabbi Yeshua? Like, why not, why not give, like, the wonders of our Heavenly Father more airtime? You know? We only have so much stuff we can say. Why not talk about Him? Um, and, you know, I need to hear that too. It's, it's easy to default and, like, I don't know, not talk about Yeshua. Just kind of take Him for granted. Because, I mean, we've all read the Bible. We all, we all know the stories, right? I kind of want to get into the habit of just being like, wow, remember when the Master did that? And just like recounting his, his glories, you know? That'd be cool. And then also in verse 11, he gives some really practical advice about, you know, if you want to experience a high quality of life, essentially, and uh, longevity, it's, it's good to seek shalom. And I like, I like that verse that you read in the Complete Jewish Bible, and, and chase after it. That's a good translation. You know, don't just sit there and wait for shalom to come. And shalom is a relational word. It's something that we have with the Almighty. It's something that we have with the people around us. It's something that we have with ourselves. So if there's a lack of it there, you don't just sit there and wait for the other person to make the first move. Shimon Kifa says, you make the first move. You initiate, hopefully, a reconciliatory process. Chase after that shalom. Yeah. Man, that's, that's hard. It's, that's uncomfortable sometimes. The, like the opposite of that, that approach is to turn around and walk away from someone, to, to disengage. And you know what? <clears throat> we will always have reasons for disengaging from other believers. We'll always have reasons to turn around and walk away, and they're always wrong. In uh, 3 verse 15, Shimon Kifa uses this concept of anava again. He says, uh, if... Uh, be, always be ready to tell someone why you don't eat pork. And uh, make sure you really lay it out, like lay it on them too. Because almost no one ever asks. So when they ask, like, make sure you give them both barrels, right? That's what he's saying. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Just kidding. 
Um, you know, he says, like, be ready, to, be ready to explain your hope that you have when someone asks you, and do it with gentleness. So there's that word anava, hey? Like, when we talk about our faith in Messiah, when we talk about our observance of the Torah, too, maybe it, maybe it implies that. Learn how to do that with, uh, with gentleness, with humility, with modesty, and uh, sometimes it doesn't hurt to wait till you're asked, too. That's what, that's what I get out of that on a practical level. By Shimi, wasn't it? Was it, was it that case? When he was exiting Jerusalem and uh, that guy, he was th- chucking rocks at David and cursing and stuff? Hmm. That's an excellent example. Yeah. Here, here's, a, here's another practical insight. Uh, Shimon Kifa, he talks about immersion in here. You immerse in a mikvah, uh, a gathering of waters, right? And he says that uh, when you do a mikvah, and you know, like, we, we do a mikvah in the name of Yeshua, but there are also multiple times in our lives when we do mikvah in terms of our, you know, just lifestyle. And he says that a mikvah is an appeal to the Holy One for something. So remember that next time you're doing a mikvah, you're appealing to the Holy One for something. When a new believer does a mikvah. Yeah. In uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 3, he talks... Uh, this is fascinating. Something I'm going to be highlighting as we go through the apostolic scriptures is how the term Gentiles is used. Because it's used in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's talking about like the non-believing nations out there in terms of outsiders. And other times it's talking about believers with the Gentile background. And if you look at the way Shimon Kifa uses the term in uh, 4, verse 3... And 2 verse 12, he, he uses the term as like non-believers. It's synonymous with non-believers. The time has already passed for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. So um, anyway, we'll, just, we'll continue keeping our radar on high alert for that term as we, as we uh, navigate through the apostolic scriptures. Another practical uh, teaching here is in chapter 4 verse 12, Shimon Kepha says that you have a gift. You have a gift with which you can serve the messianic community. I just think that's cool. I, I would like to get, get to know all of you guys on a, like better in that level. I would like to, you know, be nice. Maybe sometime on over Oneg or maybe for Rosh Chodesh or something. I'd like to just sit down and like just go around the room and just hear from each one of you what you feel your gifts are. And maybe we can speak into each other's lives too and say, you know what, I, I, I've really been blessed by you in this area. I think this is a strength of yours. But what do you guys think? Should we do that sometime? That's in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, As each one has received a gift, employed in serving one another, as good managers of the manifold grace of Elohim. And then in, uh, in the next verse, verse 11, he singles out communicatory gifts. Um, and he says, If you speak, you should talk as if you were communicating the very words of God. So like, if you feel called to teach or preach, and that is a legitimate and specific calling in the Messianic community, that's something to take very seriously. He, really, he singles that one out, hey? Um, you know, and as I prepare, for instance, for Shabbat, and, and I, I really prayerfully consider what to, what to talk about, right? Like, I, I, I give it a lot of thought. It basically takes me a solid day to prepare a message and to pour over the scriptures and, and stuff like that. So that, that's an insight from my life. Um, where I, I really I feel that, you know. Um, I, want to, I want to talk about Midrash for a second also. We all know what Midrash is, right? It's like scripture-based discussion. Um, I, I see a couple of different forms of Midrash out there. One of them is like kind of a small group discussion dynamic, right? Where let's say we, uh, we, want, to, we want to discuss through a topic, like we had at the Kapustinsky's last Shabbat. That was wonderful. You know, just bouncing ideas back and forth and bringing scriptures in and, and, and sharing different views. And, and that's good. That's really good. We need that. I think some of us coming from certain backgrounds have really been starved for that. And a lot of people, when they come into the, the Messianic movement, they're like, this Midrash thing is wonderful. I love this. Like, we could go for hours. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes you just get a room full of believers, and they'll just go for hours. And it's amazing, because, like, Yeshua speaks through that. The Ruach HaKodesh gives revelation through that. But I've also seen some excesses that I want to talk about for a moment. And I can't say I've seen it in our congregation. This is something that applies more on a broader level. I, I see Midrash when it comes to, like, in the larger congregation, Congregation as being a, a privilege, right? It gets a privilege to speak in in in, in the congregation. I, it's something to be taken very seriously. I take it very seriously that I'm sitting here talking for these minutes. You know, 
Um, sometimes I feel that the privilege of speaking in the congregation is abused in the broader Messianic movement in the name of Midrash. Shimon Kifa, what does he say here? He says, if you speak in the congregation, you should speak as it were the very words of God. So in other words, you know, there, there, is a, there is a legitimate time and place for airing our views, for sharing our opinions, for, for asking those questions. And there's also a time in the congregation for hearing from God, getting that message direct by the Holy Spirit, and speaking it boldly. Teaching and preaching, right? Unfortunately, sometimes when we come from a church background, we're so like... We have this, like, we left the church orientation, so we can't do anything like the church. And they have a pastor at the front who teaches, so we can't do that. And everybody's, like, kind of hunkers down. It's like, no one wants to stick their head out. No one wants to say more than two sentences, or it might look like, we might look like the church. Like, seriously, I've, I've encountered this. That's paranoia. And uh, you know what? Like, over and over again, in the apostolic scriptures, it, it places an emphasis on teaching and preaching. And uh, this is cool. Like, Paul, he said... You know the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You should really want them. But there's one in particular that you should want, and that's the gift of prophecy. Like when you hear direct from the Almighty, and you're empowered to communicate His message. Why is this? Because that's the one He especially wants to give you. Yeah. So th- those are some thoughts of mine on, uh, on Midrash. Moving on from there, in verse 16, um, or verse 14, sorry, down to verse 16, we also have another thing. Sometimes uh, in the Messianic Jewish community, there's a certain angst about terms like Christian or even Christ. Uh, maybe because they're from Greek terms and sometimes people have some angst about anything Greek. It's like almost assume that if it's Greek, it's bad and the correlatively, if it's Jewish, it's good. And uh, You know, um, neither is entirely true. Sometimes Jewish stuff isn't so good. Sometimes Greek stuff isn't so bad. I think we're all on the same page with that, right? But it's just, get this. When Shimon Kief is writing to believers in the Greco-Roman world, he says, if, you, if you're suffering as, in the name, like, as a Christian, in the name of Christian, that's a good thing. You should glorify God in that name. So you know what? In the Greco-Roman world, the term Christian, you can glorify God with the term Christian. Having said that, though, I don't usually call myself a Christian, not because I don't believe in Christ, but because it's, it's misleading. Like, Christian means something in our world that doesn't describe me, that maybe doesn't entirely describe you. Often Christianity has defined itself as over and against Judaism. So if you cross that line and you begin practicing some of those elements of Judaism that Mashiach practiced... You're like this hybrid species or something, you know? And so, so you know, like for, for myself, for instance, okay, Chris, Christ, Christian comes from Christ, which came from, came from the Greek term, right? Messianic comes from Messiah or Mashiach, which is the Hebrew term. It's, it's much the same idea, actually. But when you say you're Messianic, you're emphasizing that Hebraic context. So, that's, uh, maybe that's why we call ourselves Messianic. That's why I call myself Messianic. But having said that, as you can see, the term Christian, it isn't a dirty word. It's not a bad word. That's, an, that's a title also that glorifies God. Right. So uh, what, would be, what would be a parallel concept in Prince, Prince Albert? Like, okay, um, apples. You know, Aboriginal people who are ethnically Aboriginal but don't, don't speak the language or don't, don't have much of that culture. They're sometimes called apples, right? Like red on the outside and white in the middle. I don't know, maybe you've encountered that term. It's probably not the most politically correct term. I would never call someone that. But sometimes that's the idea behind like, that pop concept of a Jew, right? Like, okay, a, a Jewish believer in Jesus. He, he's, uh, he's Jewish just physically, but inside we've totally Gentilized the guy, you know? It's kind of weird. How come, how come Judaizers get such a bad rap, but Gentilizers always get away with it? <laughs> you ever thought about that? But that's, that's a question for another day. But, um, yeah. In, in 4 verse 17, this really hit me. Okay, pop concept of the gospel. You hear the gospel, you say the sinner's prayer, and like you got your ticket to heaven, right? You're, you're good to go in the afterlife. Okay, like that's really loose. That's not always the case. But you know what? Sometimes that's kind of the idea. And 4 verse 17 hit me. Simon Peter says the gospel isn't something to hear and use to ensure that you'll be in Gan Eden, like in, in, in paradise in the afterlife. He says the gospel is something to be obeyed. He talks about obeying the gospel. It's like it demands obedience. 
like a response, like an obedient response. Hey, it's either like you you hear the gospel and you respond in wholehearted obedience, or you you hear it and you walk away. But it's not enough to just give give assent or pray the prayer or whatever, you know. So I, I feel like as I'm going through this paradigm shift, as I study the apostolic scriptures and take them at face value, I'm realizing it's not just enough to get someone to believe the gospel or to get them immersed. There's an obedience element that's part of it too. Um, man, we're like becoming a room full of pretty dangerous preachers here, hey? Learning this stuff. <laughs> um, he goes on from there to talk about older, older men and younger men in the congregation. Um, I, I personally, I view, I, I view like you men in this congregation as elders in our congregation, like you're older, you, you, have, you have life experience. Um, I really respect your spiritual sensitivity, like every one of you. I, I regard you as elders. I regard you as my elders. Um, am I an elder? I do not see myself as an elder. I'm in my 30th year of life. Um, maybe I would fit some or most of the qualifications for an elder in, Paul, elder in Paul's, uh, Paul's letters, but I would more see myself as like an elder in training. I want to become a sage one day. You know, I, I want to be someone who can really serve the Messianic community in effective ways. I, I want to be like a solid rock in times of crisis, and I hope I'm growing in that area. So all that to say, when it comes to the advice to young men, that's the advice that I take, where he said, like, be subject to your elders. You know, like, my, my, people, my elders have spoken into my life and said, we, we see that you're gifted in the areas of teaching and leadership, and you should, you should grow in those areas. And so I've really taken that seriously in terms of taking action on that. But there are certain other areas where those are not my, those are not my areas of gifting. You know, so like I was approached, for instance, by a couple um, here in PA and asked if I would do their wedding. And I said, you know what, I, I'm not an elder. I don't feel equipped to do weddings at this point in my life. So, you know, there are, there are certain areas. And, uh, you know, in terms of my training, too, I, I, I am in accountable relationships to men that I would regard as elders and mentors. I stay in regular touch with them. I, I, they have like free license to just speak into my life, put the brakes on anything I do, confront me. You know, and um, I, I, you know, I invite you brothers and sisters in this room, please, to continue giving me your feedback, giving me your advice. If you ever want to just, like, call me on the carpet for something, do that. You know, if I say something really crazy and I just won't shut up, you know, just come by here and just tackle me right off this chair. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that would be a really exciting sabbat. <laughs> he, he has some really great words about leadership here, too. And I, I want to touch on that for a sec, because... If you are a human being and you live in this world, then you have a certain degree of leadership. Because essentially leadership is influence, right? Influencing the people around you makes you a leader. And we all influence people around us. <laughs> for better or worse, eh? And uh, so for that reason, I, I think his words here, man, they, they really apply. What's like the kicker when Shimon Kifa talks about leadership? I think it's in First Peter 5 verse 3. He says, Be examples. Is that something we can each be? I think so. I think, I, from my understanding of leadership, Shimon Kif is saying that is the essence of leadership. Being an example. Um, maybe on a, a practical level, we could, we, could, you know, we could focus on our own discipleship to Yeshua, our own observance of the Torah. You know, the result is we'll become those examples. We'll influence many other people around us in the process. Um, he also gives a couple of practical pointers. You know, like, if you're going to be serving the body, if you're in any form of leadership, like, don't do it as a duty because you have to. If you're going to do it, do it voluntarily. You know, be eager about it. I, what I get out of that is, like, do it because you want to. Um, also, like, don't lord it over other people, which, from my understanding, is, like, don't be authoritarian. Um, don't be abusive. Maybe we've all bumped into different models of leadership that have, have bordered on that. If I ever even touch on that, you guys, just like, come by here and tackle me. You know? Or if you don't want to tackle me, like, hire, a, hire one of the riders to come up here some Shabbat morning and just take me out. You know? <laughs> Man, I'm, like having, I'm having a lot of fun imagining some of these scenarios as they play out in my mind right now. Boom! <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. Here, here, here's a connection between the, the Torah portion and the, and the Parsha. In, uh, in, in Breshit, in Genesis 19, verse 11, we discover that one of the weapons in the Almighty's arsenal is the ability to strike hostile groups of people with instant blindness. Don't you wish you could do that with people that bug you sometimes? Man. Anyway, he can do that. But in 5, verse 9 of First Peter, we learn that our spiritual weapon 
It's a spiritual weapon that resists the forces of evil in this world. And what is that weapon? Faith. So if you're coming under attack from the enemy, he's going to try and take out your faith. Maybe that'll look like doubts. Maybe that'll look like massive disappointment with God. Maybe that'll look like discouragement or depression. But anything that's taken out your faith, that's an attack from the enemy. Just take it as that right away. Have your enemies tricked with true sight right on. <laughs> that's a gooder, Greg. I love that. Here's two practical, here are two practical things about how faith comes into our lives. During those times when you are on the front lines and your faith is under fire, uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul points out that faith comes by hearing the word of Messiah. So you know what? If your friend, if your spouse, if whoever, if their faith is under fire, start, start speaking the truth into their lives. Start reinforcing their faith with the word of Messiah. How's that for something practical? And the other thing we learn in 1 Corinthians 12 is that faith is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the gifts. It's a supernatural gifting of the Holy Spirit. Like, faith doesn't just happen. It's crazy out of this world, right? And so, here's the cool thing. Like, Abba gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So if you or someone you know is having a faith crisis, pray that the Father will give that person the gift of faith. Because it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And like, He wants to download those gifts into us, eh? If if we're not experiencing it, it's because we haven't asked Him yet. Um... Then in the very end of this letter, Peter um, references where he's writing from, Bavel, Babylon. There's a certain strain of thought that popped up over time that that was Rome. Um, however, Babylon was Babylon. Rome was not understood to be Babylon. Rome perhaps now is understood to be Babylon, but at that point, Babylon was like a capital city of a region. There was a very large Jewish community there. Um, in fact, there were many more Jews in Babylon than they were in Judea. And uh, if you want a practical like historical homework assignment, go and uh, read the, read the uh, article on Babylon, let's say, in um, the online Encyclopedia Judaica. It's pretty fascinating. An example of that would be after the Jewish people were removed from Israel um, in, in 70 and in 130, 135 CE by the Romans, a lot of them did go to Babylon. And there was a very sizable Jewish community there. Their yeshivas there, like their, uh, their academies of study, were, were massive. They had a lot of clout. They were very advanced. Uh, the original version of the Talmud was called the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. The later one that was really souped up and expanded, it was like four or five times the size from what I've read, was called the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, right? Why? Because most of the scholars are in Babylon. So, you know what? Simon Peter was probably in Babylon, the literal place. That's my opinion. <laughs> then, okay, let's finish by looking at a couple. We're going to look at two things from this, this Torah portion. Firstly, we're going to look at some Masay Avraham, some deeds of Abraham. Because Yeshua said, you know, if, if, you're, if you're Abraham's sons, then do the deeds of Abraham. The Masay Avraham, right? And uh, there, are, there are eight deeds here that I see in this parsha. Well, actually, one of them is a non-deed. And then one of them is, a, is like a... A uh, deed of someone else, a masse of someone else. We'll get to that. Masse Mishahu Acher. Anyway, Genevieve will appreciate that. The first one is something that Shimon Keefe encouraged us in, like love each other fervently, practice hospitality. And I have to say, like, man, you guys are amazing in that regard. Like, you guys are so hospitable. We, Genevieve and I, we have been really blessed by the times we've been able to stay over at people's houses, um, experience your hospitality. You know, you guys like hosting us for Sukkot and for Oneg last week. I just, I, I just feel so good about that, you know. And we see that in this parsha too. Like, I don't know, you, you all must be a bunch of sons and daughters of Abraham or something. Because I, I read in this parsha that Abraham was super hospitable. Um, Maybe we, can, maybe we can turn to Genesis 18 and we'll, we'll look at some of that. But, but Avraham, like, he ran to meet his guests. He invited them in. He, he washed their feet. He wined and dined them. And then he uh, even walked with them a ways as they left to see the moth. It's a little harder to do that one in the winter because it's like minus 35 and you just don't really want to go outside in, your, in your, your slippers to see your guests off to the car when it's like a blizzard, you know. But that's kind of cool too to do sometimes, actually walk someone out to their vehicle, um, something like Abraham did. So we could see that's the first Masse Avraham, love and hospitality. The second one that I see, don't know how deep I want to get into this topic. I'll just touch on it. We're going to talk about, 
the, like the, the flip side of this, like the second deed of Abraham that I see in here is interceding for cities and countries. Um, the opposite of intercession, what is it? To call, to call for judgment, to condemn. Um, who's the ultimate intercessor? Yeah, Yeshua. Who's the ultimate accuser and prosecutor? Like the one who calls for judgment and condemnation. It's, yeah, that's right. It's the enemy. Man, sometimes I, I confess I have sounded more like the enemy. You know, and I've been very religious. It's all in the name of righteousness, right? But I end up sounding more like the en- enemy. Um, it's a good thing to stop and ask ourselves every now and then. Who do I sound more like? Do I sound like Yeshua, the ultimate intercessor whose heart is so full of love and compassion? Or do I sound more like Satan who is cold-hearted, detached, and very religious? <laughs> Yikes, hey? First um, Peter 4, verse 17 talks about that. He says that if and when, okay, I'm going to paraphrase, if and when God comes to judge America... He's not going to begin by judging the whole country. He's going to begin by judging the body of Messiah. And the men who are in leadership in the body of Messiah, including some of those self-same men who are calling so vehemently for God to judge America. Some, some of those religious men who are spewing condemnation and judgment, but who are cold-hearted and disattached and who do not spend any time praying and interceding for their country. Maybe some of those men have hypocrisy in their lives. Some of them are going to be the first to go when God sets about judging America. If and when He does, right? I'm not saying He's going to. I'm not calling for that. I'm just saying, like, sometimes I see ministries and they're based on condemnation. And I do not see that as being Yeshua's heart. I do not see this as being our father Abraham's heart. When Abraham had the, an inkling that Sodom was going to get judged, and say, instead of saying, well, finally, you know, if God doesn't judge Sodom, He's going to have to apologize to America. Is that, what it, is that what he said? He said, God, listen, if there's only 50, Saudi Kim, like 50 righteous people, would you, would, you, would you spare them? Would you spare them? And you're like, man, he really put his heart and soul into it. Like he finally bargained him down to 10, like the bare minimum. You know, I, just, I wonder what that looks like in our lives. Yeah. I'm, I'm singling out America because it's like a big theme in the religious world, right? Well, you probably heard the phrase, you know, like if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I just think, man, like, I don't know, why don't you get on your face and ball and pray for America instead of standing off and being arrogant and judging, you know? Like, that, that, that's how I feel. I don't know, if any of you have ever said that, please forgive me, I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive here, right? I know I'm kind of cutting loose, um, but this is what, in prayer, what I felt like. This is something I feel Messiah is saying to the body. The third one, Mike, you already explained this one. In uh, 18 verse 8, we learn what isn't a deed of Abraham. One, uh, one of the Maasai Avraham is uh, he served his guests meat and milk, that is to say, Bisari and Chalavi, at the same time. It doesn't say anything about the guests waiting three hours before partaking of the milk and the meat dishes either. If that was an important point about the three hours, the Torah would have specified it. So we can conclude separating meat and milk is not one of the original Maasai Avraham, the deeds of Abraham. Um, the fourth one. 18 verse 14 and 20 verse 2, 21 verse 2 specify that Sarah had her baby on a moed, an appointed time. We talked about that. You know what, that, that indicates us, to us at the very least that Abraham was in touch with the lunar-based calendar that is today the calendar of Israel. Otherwise, this whole moed thing would have made no sense to him. So one of the, one of the deeds of Abraham is to stay in touch with the calendar of Israel. Hey, isn't that cool? That's something that Messiah is restoring to the body. There's like this thing about the feasts. So many people are like, the feasts, I just, I need to learn about the feasts. Man, that is the Holy Spirit calling us to to return to this deed of Abraham. Uh, Fifthly, in 18 verse 19, teaching your children and grandchildren to do what's right, to do what's just, to walk in Yahweh's ways, that's one of the Masay Avraham. Uh, Sixthly, 21 verse 1, circumcising your sons on the eighth day after their births is one of the Masay Avraham. And maybe... You could also say that throwing a big party when your son is officially weaned, as we read in 21 verse 8, is one of the Masay Avraham too. I think we should make that one of the deeds of Abraham. I, I love parties. I can't wait. It'll be like so fun when we have a son. And like when he's weaned, I want to throw like a big party. I want to have a huge barbecue and like invite everybody. That'd be so fun, hey? It's like what Abraham did with Isaac. It's like, that's cool. Um, 
You know how we talked about how there was one incident where Abraham got in trouble for listening to Sarah? Well, this, this parasha, like gives us the other side of the equation. Elohim flat out says to Abraham, listen to your wife Sarah and everything she tells you. So we could say that listening to your wife's advice, assuming, of course, that it isn't in blatant contradistinction to the written word of God, is one of the Masse Avraham too. And uh, eighthly, doing what God says, observing his commands, is probably one of the biggies, one of the big Masse Avraham. In 18 verse 1, you know, where this parsha opens, what happened in 17? Abraham circumcised himself. Ouch would be an understatement. He did that in obedience to one of the commandments. And what happens in the next chapter? He receives further revelation. It's like he goes to the next level in his relationship with the Almighty. He, he's like imbued with a greater level of priestly authority. And uh, that's very true for each one of us as believers. When we act on what he has shown us of himself and his will, he'll show us more. Often also a, a visitation from God or a supernatural experience will come after your observance of the commands of God have been tested and you've come through with flying colors. In uh, 22 verse 1, it's like the Akidah, the binding of Isaac. It uses the term for Abraham being tested. The Hebrew verb is Nasah. Everybody say Nasah. And it means to go up, to ascend. To, um, you can remember that by like, what's the, uh, what's the United States uh, aerospace program called? Nasah. Going up, ascending. Same idea. It's kind of cool. Nasah is like a Hebrew word. Essentially, I don't know if they did that intentionally or not, but I kind of wonder. Because you know what? Like, Jewish people are smart. And there's some pretty smart Jewish people in, in the aerospace industry. And some other industries that I know of. But um, anyway, what does this tell us? It tells us that like, the tests that come into your life, because of your observance of the Almighty's commandments, they are like, they're things that will take you to the next level. They'll bring you up if you, uh, if you pass the test. Okay, um, I thought a couple of friends of mine were going to be here today who would appreciate this. They're not, so I'm not going to go into de- much detail with this. But uh, Shimon Kifa several times like calls us as believers to be alert, to be sober-minded. The opposite is getting hammered, right? Um, we see that one of the non-deeds of Abraham is one of the Masay Lot. One of the deeds of Lot is to get hammered. And uh, when, when drunk people, they, they do really stupid things. So Simon Peter is saying, like, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Why? So, you know, stay alert. Pray. Anyway, I won't go into more detail with that one. <laughs> no, that was, the, that, was the, uh, that was the one masse load that we should avoid. Not abusing alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Why was Isaac weaned and why did they have the... Well, of course we know that, but why was the party? It was, pro- it was probably a Middle Eastern custom. Because these guys were like patently Middle Eastern. You know, like Abraham solving a water rights issue by lining up seven ewes over by themselves. Do you, do you get that one? I, I don't really get that. That was like, that was a Middle Eastern way of communicating and resolving conflict, right? So that would be an example of how some of these things they did. Hmm. Well, when we, when we have our first um, party for the weaning of our first son, then um, we'll have to We'll have to plan that ahead of time. We'll perfectly consider it and we'll see what, what we're going to do. Maybe there will be some things we'll learn in the process. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there you go. It's like so the parents can cheer up the... <laughs> so we could all like encourage the parents and cheer them up because they all like, no, sleep, hey. <laughs> That's funny. I, I want to go back to one thing. There, there's like this chapter with... Uh, the people in Sodom, and it, it specified one of their areas of sin, right? And that area has come to be called, you know what, it's named after the city. But I want to read to you something from Ezekiel that says what the sin of Sodom was. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the prophet says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance. Abundant food and careless ease, but she didn't help the poor and needy. Ouch. It's way easier to stigmatize a certain kind of sin that's connected with Sodom, and we totally turn a blind eye to the other kind, hey? It's so easy to turn a, a, a blind eye on our, old, our own cold hearts when, when we see the needy and we, we don't act to help them. 
But you know what? According to the scriptures, that is in the same class of sin. It's one of the sins of Sodom as some that are more stigmatized in our culture. So I just think, man, you know, like we as believers cannot sit there and point fingers at the world or whatever because we can begin with our own hearts and say, do I have areas in my heart where I'm cold, where I just don't care about people, when I'm not compassionate, where... uh, Okay, I'll give you an example in my life where hundreds of thousands of lepers are rotting away in this world and I just don't care. I just don't think about it. Even though I have a commission to cleanse lepers. You know, for me, that is just as bad as certain sins that have a stigma attached to them. That, 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 that's where I'm at right now, right? I want to go and I want to like clean out some leper colonies. It's something I've been prayerfully, I've been praying about lately. So anyway, I'll, just give, I'll give you that example from my personal life. And you know what? It's going to look a little different for each one of us. But that's, that's just something I feel like it gets ignored. Like, why sometimes is the religious world so outspoken against certain sins that have a stigma attached to them and there's like hush-hush about other ones? Like, you know, if you're materially affluent, if, uh, you know, you're pretty well-to-do, if, you, you know, your needs are taken care of and you just kind of like sit on it and don't do anything for anybody else. According to the prophet, that's just as bad as certain sins that are, you know, a little more charged or whatever. So, hmm. My grandpa, like my Baptist pastor, Grandpa North Battleford, was like that too. I remember people would come to his door and he would just help them like anybody. I remember one time, okay, sometimes people come to your door asking for money and giving him money isn't the best thing. I remember once he said to someone, like I was just a little kid, but this so stays in my mind. I remember someone came to the door asking him for money. And he said, well, you know what? You know what? We're friends and I really like you. And uh, I gave some money to someone just recently. I, and uh, and you know, I lent it to them. And they said they were going to pay me back, and, and then they didn't. And next time I saw them on the street, they, they, they didn't want to talk to me, and I lost my friend. And I don't want to lose my friendship with you, so I'm not, I don't think it would be good for me to lend you money. <laughs> I mean, like, it didn't register for me right. But like, right, but like years later, I'm like, wow, that was really smart. <laughs> that was pretty tactful. But I, I want to leave you with a thought about Okay, you know, there's this, this uh, concept of putting God in a box, right? And I just want to leave you with a couple short thoughts about how this parsha really blows, like, whatever maybe conceptions we'd have about the Almighty. Some classic ones, are like, I don't know. There's some uncomfortable concepts in here. I'll just I'll list them for you. Here's something interesting. In E.W. Bullinger's Companion Bible, he was a famous scholar, um, in the Appendix 32, he lists 134 emendations of the Sofarim. 134 places where the scribes changed the name Yahweh, yod heh in the texts, to Adonai. And uh, in Genesis, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, there are six places where this happened, and it's all in this parasha. Because some of the things in this parasha caused Orthodox Jews some degree of discomfort. Firstly, we have individuals calling the Almighty by His name. Avraham is speaking with the Almighty in person, and he's calling Him Yahweh. In 18 verse 3, when the guests, when the guests show up, he calls them Yahweh right off the bat. That's a little uncomfortable for some people theologically. So they change it to Adonai, which also means my masters or my sirs, you know. A little, uh, a little fuzzy. Another example, Lot calls the two messengers in Sodom, Yahweh, in um, Genesis chapter 19, verse 4. There are also 18 places where the scribes change certain phrases that they were just uncomfortable with theologically, where it says that Abraham was standing before, before the Holy One. It actually, originally the text read that the Holy One was standing before Abraham. Yeah, anyway, you can read about that in uh, the appendixes of... Uh, of uh, Bollinger's Companion Bible or in Ginsburg's uh, commentary if you want. Um, here, here well, you know, what I get from this parsha though is like, you can't put him in a box. Like some people fall for, okay, some people fall for really stupid things in the name of, well, you can't put him in a box so we have to accept everything, right? I do not accept everything that happens um, as being from him. But you know what? It is true that there's something about our creator that is vast, that is transcendent, that is, can I say wild? Not in the sense of crazy, but in the sense of like, untamable by us. We can't control him. To a certain degree, he's unpredictable. He's awesome. And here are, a couple, here are a couple examples that for me just, they leave me like mystified by, my de- by this deity who is like my deity. They leave me like fascinated by this, this person who created the universe. Uh, firstly, he shows up as three guys. Uh, secondly, he eats the meal of milk and meat that Abraham gives them. He ate it, it says. Uh, thirdly, 
Genesis 18, verse 21. I don't know. This verse must drive Calvinists crazy. <laughs> he says, I will go down now and see if they've done it entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I'll know. Like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, one of him stays up with Abraham, while the other two of him go down to Sodom. <laughs> um, Fifthly, he lets Abraham negotiate with him on the fate of the city, knowing full well that there weren't even ten Sadiqim in the city, and that the place was going to go up in smoke, regardless of Abraham's efforts at negotiation. Sixthly, in 1833, after the negotiation session, Yahweh departs. What? What about omnipresence? How can he depart? Wasn't he, isn't he still there? I mean, it's just it's interesting, the terms that are used here. Uh, seventhly, he makes like he's going to stay in the city square, like the two of him who go down to Sodom, right? And uh, like he makes like he's going to stay in the city square. But then he lets Lot prevail upon him to stay at Lot's house, or stay, prevail upon them. It's kind of hard to say him or them here, you know. We're, we're talking about Elohim. And then eighthly, he says in 1922, he can't do anything until Lot gets to Zoar. He can't do something. So I don't know, like, just the language in this parasha, I, I, I affirm the omniscience, the omnipotence, and the omnipresence of the Almighty, right? I, I have no question about those things. But what I get out of this is, like, we're not just talking about some big disattached person way out there on his throne who's just kind of like flipping the remote on planet earth. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he's really engaged. Like he comes down to, to see if what he heard about was, was really happening. And I don't know, he's interactive. Like, that's, that's our Elohim. So anyway, uh, hopefully we can bump into him in this next week here and there. I'm going to keep my eyes open for him. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.